Okay, I would like to thank SEBTS for hosting the conference and the organizers for an invitation to address this audience. And this can be easy, an easy and short assignment. Common wisdom says that pronunciation is irrelevant for those who want to read the Greek New Testament. So I can sit down. Thank you very much. <laughs> In fact, pronunciation has a very important indirect effect on our whole field. In order to properly address the question of pronunciation, we must first discuss the role of speech itself in the field of New Testament studies in particular and language pedagogy in general. Speech is vital for the field of New Testament studies if the field is to mature. Most in the field assume the opposite of this simple truth. So we need to briefly address this issue before proceeding. That was point number one. Point number two, I'm going to start reading from a little earlier in the quote, give you some context as we get to what is in your handout from Catherine Walter. The working memory consists of a central executive, she's talking psycholinguistically, central executive plus slave systems. One of the slave systems is the phonological loop, a short-term memory mechanism that stores information in phonological form and automatically rehearses that information by unconscious sub-vocalization page 457. So let me unpack that a bit. The subvocalization is not consciously heard, and it does not refer to mumbling. It's a process that's internal to the brain before conscious thought. Now, continuing from Walter, quote, the phonological loop holds about two seconds of speech, which listeners record automatically when they hear speech. The phonological loop comes into play in a somewhat counterintuitive way in the reading of alphabetic languages. I'm still quoting. Strange as it may seem, L1 readers of languages, that means mother tongue readers of languages, with alphabetic writing systems, store the most recently read material, about as much as the reader can say in two seconds, in their phonological loop, rather than in their visuospatial Sketchpad. L1 readers of these languages do not mentally see what they've just read, they hear it. A brief, I'm going to continue, but this is a little experiment here. Her study devised some psycholinguistic testing with statistically significant correlations. The application of her results interest us here. Now, I read that some of you will just have experienced what 
she was talking about with the two-second phonological loop. I read that at a speed that is below comprehension speed, meaning you should have had trouble understanding what I just said. Okay? That's to illustrate this principle, that you actually have this thing. The other people also recognize that sometimes you're not listening to somebody, and somebody says something to you, and they may say something like, you're not listening to me, you don't know what I just said. And, and then they stop, and, they, and you know what they do. You're not listening to me, and you don't know what I just said. And they go, oh, I thought you weren't listening. Well, you weren't listening, but your, psycholog your, um, your phonological loop actually recorded it. You weren't thinking about it, but it was there, and you were able to recall it. So sometimes you're able to cheat with <laughs> some of these psychological gimmicks. Okay. Now, I'm going to read the sentence again so that we're up to where we want to be. Her study devised some psycho psycholinguistic testing with statistically significant correlations. The application of her results interests us here. Quote, now this is in your handout, what does this imply? First of all, it means that the progress for progress in reading, classroom time will be better spent in increasing proficiency and exposure to the spoken language generally than in attempting to teach comprehension skills. Okay, let's get a second witness. Diane August, Timothy uh, Shanahan, this is number three, but I'm going to start reading to give you more context. An important finding, oh, well, let me give you the title so that you know what kind of witness this is. It, it was a national study done. Developing Literacy in Second Language Users, Report of the National Literacy Panel on Language Minority Children and Youth. Okay. Quote, an important finding that emerges from the research is that word-level skills in literacy, such as decoding, word recognition, and spelling, are often taught well enough to allow language minority students to attain levels of performance equal to those of native English speakers. So let me apply that to New Testament Greek studies. This is good news. There is every expectation that we can train our students to achieve equal parsing skills to native Greeks, theoretically ancient or modern. Kawabunga, Buffalo Bob. That's probably dated. Oh, well. I have gray hair. I've earned it. But let's return to August and Shanahan. Quote, However, this is not the case for text-level skills, reading comprehension, and writing. The research suggests that the reason for the disparity between word and text-level skills among language minority students is oral English proficiency. Did I get that? Yes, some of that. It is not enough to teach language minority students reading skills alone. Extensive oral English development must be incorporated into successful literacy instruction. 
Let me apply that to New Testament Greek studies. This is not so good news, or rather, it's a call to radical changes in our pedagogy. Reading comprehension directly relates to what is termed exegesis in biblical studies. If we want to increase exegetical comprehension skills in Greek, we need to provide extensive oral Greek development. We should also carefully refine our ideas about reading itself. You had a little test there a few minutes ago. Please listen. It's probable that what we commonly call reading, when reading the source text, does not qualify as reading that is described and studied by research. Researchers on reading define true reading as something that happens unconsciously when a literate person encounters a written text in a language that they know, like right there. You cannot not read it. As soon as your eyes land on it, you've already taken that in. Researchers on reading define true reading as something that happens unconscious. Oh, I just read that. In terms of speed, this takes place at least at the rate of speech and generally faster, closer to 200 words per minute and faster. That's reading. So we want to teach people to read the Greek New Testament. We read German, we read French, let's do Greek. Okay, we may affirm that such reading skills are desirable for high-level text comprehension, and we can see that psycholinguistic research indicates that we need high oral skills if we want to develop such reading skills and to internalize the language. An anecdotal analogy may help us to see this in perspective. If a student wants to devote their life to Russian literature, They'll learn Russian. They'll internalize the language so they can comprehend the language at the speed of speech. If they want to pursue graduate studies, they'll first get an excellent BA, maybe built on 50, 60 semester credit hours at a good university. If the student is, is in the military, they may go to the Monterey Language Institute in California, uh, although that's for practical and technical Russian, not literature per se. And an aside, I've had two friends that have done that, and they've ended up sitting in mountains in Ararat uh, listening to Russian pilots. They, go, they spend 11 months at Monterey, then they end up listening to pilots uh, chit-chat about what they did over the weekend, and that's not shabby. Okay, but I regress. Regress. The next question becomes, how can we possibly achieve or make progress towards such goals? And the first and immediate guidance comes from the American Council for the Teaching of Foreign Languages, ACTFIL. Here's their advice, handout number four. I'll read. Research indicates that effective language instruction must provide significant levels of meaningful conversation and interactive feedback in the target language in order for students to develop language and cultural proficiency. The pivotal role of target language interaction in language learning is emphasized in the K-16 standards for foreign language learning in the 21st century. 
Actville therefore recommends that language educators and their students use the target language as exclusively as possible, 90% plus, at all levels of instruction, during instructional time, and when feasible, beyond the classroom. In classrooms that feature maximum target language use, instructors use a variety of strategies to facilitate comprehension and support meaning-making." End of quote. They had a footnote. Communication for a classical language refers to an emphasis on reading ability, that's the goal, and for American Sign Language to signed communicative ability. Fair enough. But put that into perspective. So I have some brief comments. One, 90% or more in a classroom is the best practices recommendation and can effectively be termed an immersion approach. Two, this is a conclusion by an organization of language pedagogy professionals based on research and is not an individual hypothesis. Three, classical languages are recognized to have different emphases and will target written goals and presumably will primarily use written assignments. However, they still need to run a classroom, etc. 90% of the time in the language. And to do that efficiently and effectively, there's no escape from the rapid, extensive language use of oral-oral interaction. Four, spoken language is necessary for improving reading. Point two and three we just did. Let me add a word of encouragement. Language is a team sport. If we take all the above to heart, we'll recognize that there are no programs in existence today that can produce what is necessary, at least in Greek. The church needs to build this. It also is immediately obvious that the meager time slots, 6, 9, 12 credits, cannot fill this gap, even if more efficient pedagogies would be adopted. For serious commitment and internalization of the biblical languages for future teachers, nothing less than a full and efficient BA program with good methodology will suffice. So SEBTS is off the hook for the moment. But the day is coming when they will need to offer a course in first century historiography with class lectures in Greek or Paul and Stoic philosophy with the lectures in Greek, courses on New Testament books including early Greek commentators and lectures in Greek. So the next generation has something to pray for. With this introduction and background we can turn to the question of Greek pronunciation. Is the question important? Well, I hope it is now. What psycholinguistics and SLA second language acquisition studies show is that speech is vital if we want to internalize the language of our interest and to develop high-level reading skills. Once we conclude this, then pronunciation becomes an issue. We need to choose a pronunciation. Handout 5 gives some principles. You've got them, I won't read them. At this point, we must remove 
one more straw man. Something often assumed in the field. Quote, there are no MP3 recordings of New Testament Greek, so we can't know what it sounded like. In any case, there would have been dialectical differences from region to region, city to city, so pronunciation can be ignored as irrelevant. Fortunately, linguistic study allows us to reconstruct a phonemic analysis of Cune Greek. We know that travelers around the Mediterranean were able to communicate in Greek, and we can reconstruct what the general sound patterns looked like, even if we cannot describe the sub-phonemic differences that would have been met in any one city. So, many of you, those are real words. Some of you just got blank words there, phonemic. <laughs> so, we'll divert for a minute or two. A phonemic system refers to phoneme, phoneme units. Phonemes are sound distinctions that create distinctions in meaning. We need to have a clear understanding about what a vowel phoneme is. It's a distinctive sound that's able to differentiate meaning in a language. For example, in English, in Eng many English dialects, we have beat, bit, bait, bet, and bat. Five different words. Five different words by five changes of sound. The vowel sounds are five phonemes that produce five phonemic words. Now, English also has three words with the sound of the IPA, International Phonetic Alphabet, um, um, beat. There's the vegetable beat. There's the verb to beat something. Ah, to hit it and the musical rhythm as the beat goes on. Those are homonyms in English. They have the same sound, same vowel phoneme, regardless of the history of the language or how they're spelled. The three homonyms are one phonemic word, but the five distinctive vowel sounds above are five phonemic words. So physically, the vowel phonemes are made by placing the tongue in different heights. 6a shows a left-facing mouth and the approximate positions right in the middle in tiny letters where the height of the tongue makes E, A, and U. And 6B magnifies the E, A, and U. And all you have to do, if you're a speaker of that language, is get your tongue somewhere in there. It doesn't matter exactly what that Ah is. If it's ah, anywhere in there would have worked. But you better not say ooh or e because you'll be miscommunicating in that language. And anyway, that's the that's a that's how the mouth gets divided for three vowel positions. Six C five vowel positions. Five vowel positions, this is something you run across, for instance, in Spanish, uh, modern Greek, modern Hebrew, and ancient Hebrew. Uh, let's move over 6D. 6D, we now have six vowel positions. We've got three up front. 
And we've added one more, and I'm about to describe them. On the back, we have the back of the mouth facing left. We have oo, we have o. Ah is kind of halfway in between. Those are called rounded vowels because the mouth ten oo, very rounded, o, pretty rounded. Whereas the ones in the front, e, 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 flat, not rounded. Okay, so what's that oo with the two dots? Some of you have had to learn German. Good. E. It's e, but round your lips, and e becomes a different sound. Okay. Um, they had that sound in Greek. They, I don't know if you were told that, but that's what e sounded like, even back in Athens. Um, maybe not Homer, but at least Athens. Uh, 6e, you get to see what I call restored, what others call it, restored attic. Sidney Allen studied it. Stephen Dates recorded some nice um, Homeric material. And we have the same six system from CD, but now we have length. And the colon means long, and the symbols without the colon means short. And you'll notice that the short vowels are closer to the center. And that's because physically your tongue in a short vowel doesn't move as far. And so it ten they tend to be more centralized. And um, moving over to 6F, you can see that now transferred into Greek script. But you'll notice that the Greek script is missing length. Um, ancient Greek, number seven. Ancient Greek had a defective orthography that did not differentiate long and short vowels. This was, particular, this was partially corrected in 403 BC with the Euclidean reform when they added um, eta, which was the old H, the old rough breathing sign, and omega to the orthographic system. So this only partially marked long vowels since e, e, and a were left ambiguous. And please note that in ancient Greek we also had the distinction of um, p, teta, and ki versus p, tav, and kappa. The, we had aspirated stops versus unaspirated stops and those of you if you've ever taken a linguistic course, you probably have um, done something I'm about to do with you. Let's see here where we are. Um, well, it's in my notes somewhere. Uh, if you'll take your hand and you'll say the word pin like a little tiny thing that you can stick into paper. Pin. Say the word pin against your face, pin, and then say spin. Spin. Pin. When you say pin, you'll feel a puff of air. Those are actually two different sounds. Some languages use that for meaning. They are phonemes. Ancient Greek used that distinction. Your p, teta, ki was using that distinction. Now, they started to drop out in the Cuneate period, and 
Um, it regularized during the Roman period and has ended up in modern Greek. So now we have uh, phi, theta, chi, veta, delta, gamma. And those, those sounds, um, for some reason in typical Erasmian, they like the modern for phi, theta, chi, and they use the old Attic for beta, delta, gamma. So it's, they, and historically, they, they actually came in in opposite orders. The beta, delta, gamma entered first, already by the first century. Um, and then the, the, phi, the phi, theta, chi came in a little later during that Roman period. Okay, now where are we? Ah, page three, number eight. First, I gave you some charts. We won't take time to read through them. That's the 403 ancient or Attic Greek system. But we're focused on Cunei, so let's go to eight. After Alexander the Great, Greek rapidly spread throughout the ancient world, and Greek went through a wide-ranging phonological rearrangement, not too different in scope than the great English vowel shift after the Black Plague and Chaucer. This was the great Greek vowel shift. So imagine receiving a first-century letter, and I'm not going to read that to you yet. Uh, how many know what that says already? It's not some back it's not some midsummer night with guys um, screaming and hollering, uh, <laughs> whoopee, I-O, etc. Anyway, but we'll come back. Let's, let's look at what we do know from tens of thousands of examples. I'm going to give you a few here, but this is not, this is not the evidence. This is only an illustration of what the evidence looks like. Um, it could be multiplied 10,000 times. Number uh, 10. What do we know? All throughout the Mediterranean, length dropped out of the system. The resulting vowels and symbols looked like E, pronounced like E. E, pronounced like E. Pair 3. O, pronounced like O. E, pronounced like E. 11. Some examples of e, 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 etc. So, for instance, uh, nuni, umin. If you flip to page four, number 12, some more examples of e and e. I'll, I'll read the last example with you. You have apozikse. Apozikse, spelled in the left column, apozikse. The right column, apozikse, is what you would find in a regular spelled a, a, a correct, corrected text, apodixe. Oh, oh, let's go to 13. I'll jump down to the last example. Uh, embiros, to do it skillfully. You'll notice that the O, the scribe wrote Omicron instead of Omega. He wrote Yota instead of Epsilon Yota. He wrote Nu instead of Mu. Embiro, embiros. 14. Uh, same thing with e, with Omicron Yota and Ypsilon. Um, anyone you want to look at? Uh, uh, maybe Enigmenon. 
something opened. Two other points on E. If you look at the Babatha 20, 21, by the way, this is from uh, 120, 130 CE. This is Dead Sea material. This is actually representing the way Greek was used basically in Paul's time. It's technically uh, a couple generations later, but, but this is all the evidence we've got, basically. So um, we have a little bit earlier, uh, again, showing this whole system. And the Babatha 21, you'll see an extra yota put in there. And this is, I'm pointing out because it gives you some of the evidence for Ypsilon as a as a front-rounded U. Okay, 15. We're back to to, to yo, and that means to the son. A father wrote a letter to his son, 100 A.D. How are things going, boy? You know, we miss you, etc. And that's how he wrote the opening line. And the son read it without any problem, I'm sure. To yo. Thank you, Dad. That's... So, there is a problem with eta. Um, eta was, was one of the last two vowels that shifted towards yota. Eta shifted into yota probably during the second century CE. In Athens, we have um, stuff cut in stone that starts to show this. Um, but we have eta here in the Dead Sea Judean Desert um, Greek texts where Eta is very clearly still preserving the A sound. Uh, Ein Gedi, for instance, some of them up above were written with Alpha Yota or with Epsilon. Here they're written with Eta. So Eta had not yet gone to E. And yet, as soon as we get to our New Testament manuscripts, um, a little bit later in 16 there, you'll see John 10 with He Was, written in, epsilon yota. Epsilon yota, remember, is the way they wrote e. So now the eta has gone up to e as well. Uh, we have kiries, the cloth strips. And then we have something that's a little bit fun. We'll think about it later. Tapino, if I read it in the old, the cuneate of the first century, I'll say tapino se the subjunctive, but what we had written in Papyrus 46 is tapino si. And if, well, it's from the right time period where the eta has become e. The person who wrote that could have been thinking subjunctive. This isn't necessarily a future being used as a subjunctive. This could be just like when we write there with uh, e-i-r or e-r-e, there, there and their books, and we'll, we'll mix them up without thinking. Humans do that, and the scribe of P46 could have done that. We don't know whether he was thinking indicative or subjunctive, because they were homonyms in his day. Okay, fricatives, consonants, we'll hit those lightly. Just some evidence there where you get the, the veta, uh, Prevetis, Flavia, uh, Flaviu, Flavius. Uh, P46 already has Silvanu, but then it got corrected to Silvanu. That's the official old way to write that vowel. 
O Ypsilon instead of um, instead of Veta. Uh, the gamma evidence for gamma is kind of fun if you look at that Ieru of a of something holy where the gamma has been inserted between Yota and Epsilon. You wouldn't you wouldn't think of doing that if gamma was still ga. But if it's ya, if it's become ra, as it palatalizes, if you go to Greece today, you'll hear them in front of front vowels. It'll, it'll sound like a Y to you. Uyo, Eryevs. So it appears that the ancient voice stops. Veta Gamma had already gone soft. Uh, and uh, it's pretty compelling evidence. If, if Erasmians are going to use phi, theta, chi, then by consistency they should be using uh, veta, delta, gamma as well. I recommend it. 18. The Tyndale House Greek New Testament uses E for etymological long yota, pilatos, krinin, to judge. And they're to be applauded for this. However, the consistency of Vaticanus spelling does not mean that length was still being used by the scribe of Vaticanus in the fourth century. It appears to testify to scholarly redaction. Think about that for your text criticism. It's not the first time people have thought Vaticanus was redacted. Um, Tyndale people aren't sure about why that is. They've just noted that Vaticanus spells this way. I'm the one that's saying, I think it's scholarly redaction. Now, modern Greek is simplified to five vowels. No rough breathing. Tone is only word accent. Basically, modern Greek may be considered a reduction of the Cune Greek where eta and ypsilon and omicron yota, that was a typo, merged into e. Cune looks like, and I've written it out for you, and I mentioned the Roman catacombs because this is the whole Mediterranean. So out in Rome, we've got the catacombs, second, third century, most of them. Um, and we have Kita. Look at how they spelled Kita. Um, they spelled Kita. Many, they spelled it Kita, 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 and Kita. It was clear. So if you... Speak Cune Greek, you see what they were saying. They also said kite and kite, uh, showing that the hard stop pronunciation of teta and ki were still being used by some of those guys out there. Okay, rough breathing sometimes left off of Latin spellings of Greek. So, why not use restored Attic? Well, the Chaucer principle. We don't use, we don't use, we don't say the knicht in in Schinig Amor, um, instead of Knicht, we say night. And that, those changes already went in before Shakespeare. So we don't use Chaucer when we read Shakespeare. Typically, we use modern English for Shakespeare because it's almost modern English. But if you want to learn a few little distinctions for Shakespeare, go ahead. But we don't use Chaucer for Shakespeare. We certainly don't use Chaucer for modern English. So why not Restored Attic? Restored Attic is great if you want to read Chaucer with Chaucer, then read Homer with this Restored Attic. I recommend it. I had to do it. I've had to do all of these pronunciations somewhere, sometime. 
Um, at UCLA, they made us read Restored Attic. Um, modern, modern is great, and uh, if you're speaking modern, you might want to, um, if you're just reading, you might want to read the text with a modern accent uh, because you're seeing it, you're understanding it. The problem is, is when you start to communicate with others in the language, the modern doesn't carry the whole language. Eta's gone, it's got a high load. Ypsilon uh, is gone, and words like, like emis, emis, and umis, uh, we and you all, in modern, when you're reading, would just be emis, emis. You don't hear it. And that makes it hard when you're communicating back and forth. So I would recommend, even if you speak modern, if you're working with people that are using Cune, I would recommend that you pick up a reading dialect of Cune for Cune texts. So why not use a Cune pronunciation? And I wrote that out so you can see it, and I don't have to take the time because we're down to four minutes. Um, but anyway, people will say, oh, we just need to spell. It's like, you know what? Um, you don't just need to spell, and the people that say that uh, usually don't ask for much spelling anyway, and the texts are already spelled correctly right in front of you. Um, that's not a good reason. Um, professional conferences. Guess what? If you, a word, you can say a word in anything, but if you read a whole sentence, the audience can't follow it because they're not trained to follow this language at the speed of speech. So you read a whole sentence, you've just lost your audience, unless they've memorized the verse or recognized the verse, but then they're using their memory, not what you said. So you have to give them a handout. <laughs> so let's go to some practical applications. Um, Let's start with the contributions that are generated out of oral performance. Um, Greek, including the modern period, has preserved a sensitivity to word accent. When the word accent system is followed, the language preserves clarity. Um, more than might have been assumed. So listen, tonophthalmon, that's the I. Tone of Thalmon, that's of the eyes. That was a low, 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 high, and a high, low, low, high. The same thing will happen with a word like tonadalfon. You know, vlepo tonadalfon. Ti tonadalfon, something of the brothers. 23, uh, more oral performance. Ketheos ein ologos. Now, I read it the way many people would, they'd see the grav and they'd read that as a high vowel. But grav means, technically grav means potential. If you pause, you give the accent. That's why at the end of a, you give a list, you put all of those with acute accents. But if you're reading through, you drop that. You just keep low and read right through it. So technically you should say, ketheos eno logos. But the theos has been fronted as focus, and 
I think a good sensitive way would be to read this ketheos ein ologos. Slight pause, the potential accent now comes back into play for oral performance. That's against the mechanical accent system that we have that was added uh, several centuries after uh, it was used in the real language. The, th the three accent system had fallen out of speech long before it was added to our manuscripts. And so they just mechanically put it in without regard to topicalization or to focus. So I've got more examples there where that would take place. Oh, here's a double one, 24. En avto, en avto, zoe ein. Zoe marked for focus. Ke zoe ein tofos ton anthropon. The second zoe is you keep the low tone in there because it's now topicalization, it's not focus. Uh, and um, anyway, that's how you would read for clear oral performance. Uh, we'll skip down. Enclitics. I've got one more minute. So enclitics, we know like esmen, esteen, they can be put right behind something to bolster the special marking of what's in front of it. But some of the words, the word order of words like avtos, of, of emon, etc., that, that have accents in our system, the word order actually plays with them sometimes, just like in clitic. So this needs uh, more. Did I write down erevneteon uh, anywhere here? This needs more study, but um, we may have more in in the real language than the accent system showed. Romans 5.1, you've probably all seen this many times. Irenin echumen prostonteon, or... Identical sound. Here's the important thing. That manuscript, whichever one is there, the sound will be the same. The audience heard the sound. They didn't all have their pocket copies of the text. They went to church and they heard it read, and they had to get the right interpretation out of the sound. Think about that. That needs to be inside you as you're doing your exegesis. It almost doesn't matter what the guy wrote. Paul might have said one, well, he said what he said. Uh, and the scribe, I don't even know what, I, I think he was thinking indicative, but I don't know what he wrote. And the textual tradition just goes off because they sound the same. So this happens in human languages. Don't ask me about inspiration and layers of editing because we can't answer that. Anyway, Pistis Christu, there's a similar thing. I'm out of time. I was going to sing a song for you. Uh, okay. All right. It's 1965. Uh, my love, she speaks like silence. Without ideals or violence, she doesn't have to say she's faithful, yet she's true like ice, like fire. Okay, my love, she speaks like silence. The verbs frame the description as human, as a speaker. She takes the person of a woman. My love is unambiguously subjective. I am doing the loving. 
But the meaning here is an object. It's the woman whom I love that's being spoken about. This is how metaphors play weird tricks in a language. And you followed it in English, I'm assuming. And so here's another one. Um, same, well, 66 next year. Uh, my love is warmer, th my love is warmer than the warmest sunshine, softer than a sigh. My love is deeper than the deepest ocean, wider than the sky. Here are the metaphors of heat, liquid, softness, wideness, and love naturally becomes an emotion that emanates from the singer and writer. You could say that my love is a subjective verbal phrase because the of me again is the doer, and yet it's being pictured as an item, as a thing that you can be describing. What I'm saying is, is that when you have fluency in a language, you follow all sorts of complex metaphors and, and phrases like pistis Christu can be held abstractly and it literally, it's, it's under-differentiated. Paul didn't bother to explain everything because it's just the, the faith of... The faith related to Christ, what is, it's Christian faith. You know, you're saved with Christian faith. That's, you know, explain it. Well, that's a long story. So he didn't, <laughs> that's why it's under-differentiated. Anyway, these, these are some of what we want our next generation to have. So I'm going to read the last sentence. Most important thing of all of this is not the exact pronunciation but you do need um, you do need to choose a pronunciation that you can live with if you're going to internalize the language but meanwhile we want oral fluency high-level textual processing fuller comprehension and this is the commitment that we owe to God as caretakers of his word